done a lot of travel, but it's always awkward to be a foreigner visiting somewhere with different customs, different ways of doing things. Um, I haven't done a lot as far as world travel, but even going to the States, um, you feel it. You have to get used to leaving your shoes on when you walk into a house. Um, You have to get used to using words like soda or Coke to speak of pop in general. Um, You have to remember that for some insane reason, your $100 bill is the same color as your $1 bill, and don't get those mixed up. Uh, You have to know if your speedometer says 50 in a residential zone, that's not good. You're in trouble. It's different. Now, the longer you stay, the more accustomed you get to your new surroundings, you start to pick up on some of the habits, and eventually you start to fit in and you feel at home and it begins to feel normal. If you're like me, you come home after being somewhere for a while and uh, you bring a bunch of those habits home and, and you, you walk into your house in Canada and like some kind of lunatic with no regard for the carpet, you just traipse right in over the carpet with your filthy shoes. Um, you, you, you start to talk with their accent here and people are looking at you like, don't you live next door? Why do you talk that way? Um, oh, and you would just die to get your hands on a proper kosher dill pickle, which Canada just does not have. Uh, the longer you stay somewhere, the longer you begin to act and think like and talk like that culture, the place that you are. Think about it. The Israelites had been in Egypt now for almost 430 years. That's a long time. This had been home for generations. Now, they still saw themselves as a unique people. They were not Egyptians. They were, they were Israelites but they couldn't help but be influenced by the culture, the thinking, the the values of the Egyptians around them. And we're going to see that play out for chapters still as they wander into the wilderness and even as they get into Canaan. But as we look this morning at these first three plagues that God has brought against Egypt, we see that God is saying, I am the creator God. I am the creator God. Leave Egypt behind and follow me. Kids catch that one? Getting it? I'm the creator God. Leave Egypt behind and follow me. The purpose of these plagues, um, the first three specifically as we look at it, were not just to get Israel out of Egypt. It was to get the Egypt out of Israel as well. And so we're going to see that this morning. Um, I want to read this section of of Scripture um, If you don't have a Bible on you, just go ahead and slip up your hands. One of our ushers will grab you a Bible. We want you to have God's Word open on your lap um, that you can see. These aren't just my ideas. This is is God's Word. This is what Scripture says. Um, That's my goal. But as we go through these plagues, we're going to cover some longer passages of Scripture. Um, We're going to cover some ground here. And it might be tempting to say, can we just summarize this? Can you just kind of give us the Coles notes? Um, But I don't want to do that. Um, My goal is to allow God's word to speak. And so I want to let God's word speak. I want to give it the time to be read in its entirety. And uh, I was actually talking with someone this last week who said they were at a conference with uh, Mark Dever. And he preached Psalm 119. And uh, he, he just took the first full 15 minutes of his allotted time and read through all, what is it, 176 verses. Um, we're not going to be that long. 
Um, but, but I do want to read here from 7.14 through to 8.19. So follow along with me as I read, picking up at the first plague, Exodus chapter 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall be turned into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking the water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. And so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as, their, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house, into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools and make the frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and he said, Plead with the Lord and take away the frogs from me and from my people and I will let the people go sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from the land and from your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, and so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people, and they shall be left in the Nile only. And so Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. 
The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that they were, there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. And the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. And so there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. We're going through the plagues. We're going to cover some ground. And we're going to see some themes that stretch through all of it. And some that just come up in more specific areas. There's a lot going on. And over the next three weeks, I hope we're going to be able to kind of get the gist of it. But the first thing I want to show us is is that through these 10 plagues, God is saying to to Pharaoh and, and to the Israelites and to the whole world, he's saying, I am the creator God. I am the creator God. This isn't so much in any single plague in particular as it's seen over all of them. And specifically, the way the plagues are organized and, and laid out. I think this is really cool. I think this is really neat. Um, but, but just to give you a glimpse behind the curtain uh, of, of kind of biblical study, you have to know not everyone who studies the Bible sees it the way we do. If you get off into the university campuses where they're dissecting the Bible and looking at some of the ancient texts, um, there are a lot of people who study scripture who, who don't even call themselves Christians. I don't think this is true. This is not history. Uh, this is just an interesting document from, well, not as long ago as it claims to be. And there are some who would say they're, they're Christians, but they really take the Bible with kind of an open hand. I mean, you can't get too carried away. Um, take it and leave it. Look carefully at it. Um, we probably need to just admit a bunch of it doesn't belong there. Uh, and they would approach the Bible very uh, casually in that way. And one of the issues then comes down to this idea of how things are organized and, and who wrote these books and, and what's it about it. And, and if you got into the world of academia, if you got into that kind of world of the universities, most of them would say, um, these books are not written by whoever's name is on them. They're, they're compiled by editors over the years, probably 500 to 1,000 years later than they're supposed to be, uh, have been written. So we have to ask, who wrote this? What is this? Is this truth? Is this history? Um, and, and I think if we approach the Bible as God's word, um, we right away come to some, some, some pretty easy answers to some difficult questions. Now, I think there's good reason in the world of academia to argue for the trustworthiness and the, the old age of Scripture. I think there's good, solid ground there. But I think even on the face of it, without getting into some of the nitpicking, um, the Bible just tells us. And if we trust the Bible, if we're going to hold any uh, weight in it, we should believe it on some of these basic things. So the first five books of the Bible together are called the Pentateuch. That's just a fun word. Kids say Pentateuch. 
Come on, Pentateuch. There we go. Um, the first five books of the Bible are, are said to have been written by Moses. What, what are the books in the Pentateuch? Everybody give, what's the, just shout them out one at a time. What do we got? Genesis, Exodus, that's the softball. Leviticus, Numbers, we got Deuteronomy. Good job. So five books. Who wrote these five books? Who? Moses. Why do you think that? That's what it says. Look at Exodus 17, 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. It records its own writing. Numbers 33, 2. Moses wrote down their starting places stage by stage by the command of the Lord. Deuteronomy 31, 9. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and all the elders of Israel. Moses wrote these books. It says that he did. There's six times to those five books that it tells us that Moses wrote it down. And there's one more place we can look. This one might be the most significant of all. John 5, 46. Jesus himself says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writing, how will you believe my words? Jesus thought Moses wrote these books. Now, if we're not going to believe Jesus, I don't know who we believe. Um, Jesus was there. So if we're going to throw out something like Moses wrote these books, the whole, the whole Bible kind of starts to fall apart. Um, so I'm going with Jesus on it. I think Moses wrote these. And so then as we read about these miracles that are way out past anything we've ever experienced, and, and we see these themes that thread their way through not only the books written by one author, but into books from other authors, and there's this consistent theme from book to book to book, I just think God's big enough to do that. Don't you? Like, it's not that big a deal, is it? I just think that that as God is writing this book, because we say Moses wrote it, but really all of the books of the Bible have one author, right? It's the Holy Spirit. He's weaving together these themes. He's organizing things like this for us to see. And and there are a couple passages. The end of Deuteronomy, I, I don't think Moses recorded his own death. I think it's likely that maybe a a faithful keeper of the scrolls or Joshua wrote that last bit in. That's okay. I'm all right with that. But I hope it goes without saying. As we we look at these plagues and and how they're laid out, um, I don't think this is just someone being poetic with the way they've written this down or told this story. I I don't think this is someone, some editor 500 years later who's, who's trying to be cute with it. I think God did this specifically. He arranged these things for us to see, to teach Israel and to teach us. So how do the plagues show that Yahweh is the creator God? Well, there's this progression through creation from water to earth to sky. And then from the fish to the animals and finally culminating in the pinnacle of creation, man, created in in God's own image And all of the plagues are full of words and phrases that that point us back to Genesis. We've always got to remember, Exodus is not a standalone book. It's it's part of this five-part series. Uh, And even from the very beginning, we were reminded of that as we saw the 
the creation language as the people of Israel are growing and multiplying. It's the mandate that God gave to Abraham or to Adam in the garden. And so as we look at these plagues, they follow this progression and they're laid out in groups of three. So think of the plagues in three sets. Plague one, two, three is one set. Plague four, five, six is another set. Plague seven, eight, nine is the third set. And then plague 10 comes in as the hammer. That's what finishes it. That's the, the landing uh, of all of the setup. And the first plague in each set, so plagues one and four and seven, I know this is a little bit discombobulating maybe, um, but they start with telling Moses to go in to Pharaoh in the morning. Sound familiar? What's the repeated phrase in creation? And there was evening and there was morning the first day, the second day. He's saying we're moving to another stage of creation here. And that phrase is only used in those kind of first plagues of each set. And each of the first plagues starts with a statement that that moves us from water to land to sky. So plagues one, two, and three are about the water. Plague one, Aaron is supposed to tell Pharaoh... um, I will strike the water. Kids, I think my fill-in is backwards. You might have to skip down and come back again. Don't get lost. Um, Plagues 1, 2, 3 are about the water. Plagues 4, 5, and 6 are about the land. And Pharaoh, um, or sorry, uh, plague 4, Aaron says the flies would be on Egypt. We don't think of flies as being about land, but, but, but it comes up a bunch. The Egyptians are told that the, the flies will be on the ground on which they stand, and that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And then plague seven, eight, nine are about the sky. Plague seven is the hail coming down, and Moses is to stretch out his staff to the heavens. So we have this water, earth, sky, and each of these sets starts with this kind of purpose statement of each. And then in each, there's a warning for the first plague. They, they go together to Pharaoh. And then the second plague, there's a, a little bit lesser warning. And then the third plague just comes. The third plague just hits unannounced each time. And the third plague in each set breaks the mold a little bit. The first two fit with the theme of water, earth, or sky. The third plague in each set hits the pinnacle of creation. It hits man. And, and it looks forward to that last plague, the death of the firstborn son. And so plagues one and two are the Nile and the frogs. They both have to do with water. And the third plague is the biting insects. It's hitting people more directly. And then the second set, we have the the flies and the swarm on the ground. And then we have all of their livestock. And then the third is the boils and the painful sores on their skin. And the last set, we have the hail that comes from the sky and the locusts that fill the sky and then we have the third and final plague before the Passover. It's darkness. And it's, it's so dark, they can't even see one another. No one gets up from their place for three days. And it's pointing again to man. And it's also a, a warning of the judgment to come. The last plague is going to be the worst. God's judgment is coming. God's saying to Pharaoh, you asked, who is the Lord? The Lord is the creator of the heavens and the earth. I'm the one who's put this all together. I'm I'm not some small God like your gods. The Egyptians had a God over the river and a God over the harvest and a God of the rain and these little tiny gods. And he's saying, away with that. There is one God. I am the God over all of it. 
I brought this into being. And so as God is displaying his glory and pouring out his wrath on Pharaoh, it's, it's almost as if he's undoing creation. He's saying, I, I brought this and I can take it away, Pharaoh. I am the one and only God over everything, over water, earth, and sky, even over you, Pharaoh. I wonder if we have that big of a view of God. I know we'd all say he's creator. I mean, that's the biblical answer, right? But what does that really mean? I think sometimes we treat God more like one of the gods of the Egyptians. He, he's just a kind of a small God. He's, he's God over Sunday. But Monday when I'm at work, Saturday when I have important things to do, Friday night when I just need to unwind and relax, that's my time. God has Sunday. He's a Sunday God. We want to categorize and we want to kind of keep him pushed off into one part of life and, and we keep other parts for ourselves and we like having him there. We like having God. We like to call ourselves Christians and, and have him there to fall back on if we, if we have trouble, but we also want to have our own control. We want to have my life. I want to do the things that I want. I need to be able to, to make my own decisions, do my own thing. The Lord is building this case. There is one God over everything, and it's Him. Specifically, as we move into looking more closely at these first three plagues, part of His showing Himself as, as the God of creation is to say to Israel, do you see how Egypt runs after these other gods? Do you see how Egypt goes here and there for their, their life and their joy? I replace all of that. I am the source of true life. He's saying, I am the God of creation. Leave Egypt behind and follow me. Let's just walk through these three plagues and make sure we understand what's going on. Plague number one, the Nile is turned into blood. It's laid out in verse 17. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. There's a little confusion here because verse 19 says um, the water from the rivers, their canals, their ponds, their pools all become blood even in their vessels. And then we wonder, um, how did the magicians mimic the plague? Where did they get water from? How come people didn't just all die if they didn't have water in Egypt for seven days? Uh, well, we're told down in verse 24 that the people are digging along the ground or in the ground along the Nile for water. So I think there's kind of one of two answers that maybe is going on here. Either all of the water connected to the Nile turned to blood. So when he's saying all of the pools and tributaries, he's, he's saying all of the ones connected to the Nile. Or maybe it's just all of the surface water, all the water that was there and visible and, and that which then is in the ground came out fresh. We're not really told, but certainly the Nile and all of the water connected to it is turned into blood. But Pharaoh is unmoved. He says in verse 22 um, that his heart was hardened as the Lord said it would be. And he simply turned away. He went into his house. He didn't take it to heart. He didn't feel the weight of this. It's amazing. Can you imagine a river, all of the water turned into blood? And Pharaoh says, whatever. Not impressed. 
the river is blood for seven days. We don't know if there's a gap in there or not. Following that, some Jewish traditions say the, the plagues played out over the course of about a year. So maybe there's a month of quiet. And then Aaron and Moses come back into the throne room of Pharaoh. And what's the second plague, kids? Oh, frogs, frogs. If you don't let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. Now, some of you, Gideon, I think Andrew too, you're like, cool, frogs. I like frogs. I can scare mom with frogs. I can scare my sister with frogs. This this is kind of neat. I would like this plague. Think about this again. The Nile will swarm with frogs that come up into your houses, into your bedroom, onto your bed, into your houses and the houses of your servants and your people, into your ovens and kneading bowls. That's a lot of frogs. Think about that. You you get up in the morning, you head over to the bathroom, there's frogs in the toilet. You go to brush your teeth, you open the drawer, there's frogs in there. You go and get your favorite cereal out of the cupboard and there's frogs in your cereal bowl. You get out the milk, there's a frog swimming around in your milk. They're everywhere. I would get old really quick. And the magicians are able to mimic the miracle. I talked about this last week. Maybe, maybe sleight of hand, maybe it's some kind of trickery. Maybe it's demonic power. We're not really told, but think about this. What is it that they do? More frogs. Not helpful, guys. Like, this is not what we're trying to accomplish here. More frogs. The Nile turned into blood. Pharaoh just kind of shrugged it off. No doubt he had his servants go and dig fresh water for him. He had everything he needed. He didn't have to get his hands dirty. He could just kind of hide from it. The frogs are everywhere. These are, these are right into the palace. He can't escape this. And we see this kind of first crack in Pharaoh's defenses already here in Plague 2. He calls Moses and Aaron. He asks them, plead with the Lord to take the frogs away. And even promises, I will let the people go and sacrifice to the Lord. And just to prove that the Lord is really in charge, it's not just a coincidence. Moses says, okay, Pharaoh, but you tell me when. You pick the time. Pharaoh says, tomorrow. Not, not today, because that maybe it was just coincidence. Do it tomorrow. And the next day they're gone. Sort of. The frogs died. They died where they were. In the beds, in the kneading bowls, in the cereal cupboard, in the milk jug. Now you have dead frogs everywhere. My kids are getting just old enough. I can get them to like take out the garbage, maybe even mow the lawn. Uh, How about raking up piles of frogs? Piling them out in the road for the trucks to come and get. And it says again, the land stank. But as soon as Pharaoh realized the frogs are gone, for the first time, it says he hardened his heart. He saw that weakness in himself and he said, no, 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 I'm not going there. I'm not letting go of this. And if you remember the word there, again, we've talked about this a couple times along the way. It's kavod, it's, it's glory. He made his heart glorious against God. He's competing with Yahweh for worship of these people. So the Lord brings yet another plague. This time, Pharaoh's not warned. It just happens. It just comes. Moses 
told Aaron to strike the dust of the earth. Now, we're already thinking creation. What comes to your mind? You hear the word dust. Genesis 2-7. The Lord God formed the man from the dust. This third plague, the Lord strikes man, humanity, turning the dust into gnats. It's a general term, some kind of biting insect. Maybe just for our Canadian culture, we could think just clouds of mosquitoes. I don't know if you've ever had one of those years. We, we had a house that had a lot of still water around it. Uh, and, and I remember one year we, we you walked outside and they were just, you, you couldn't walk because you're breathing them in and they're just everywhere. You, you try to run just to keep ahead of the cloud that followed you. Maybe you have experience with black flies or lice. That might be a little closer. Um, something that creeps and bites. This time the magicians try to recreate the event and they fail. They, they, can't, they can't counter this. They can't follow. This would have been particularly humiliating for them because not only did they fail to duplicate it, but they're, they're personally tortured by it. And the magicians fold. Verse 19, they say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. There's no denying it. Now, we don't make too much of this. They probably still believed in a whole array of gods. They, they don't say, this is Yahweh, let's worship him. But they know divine power when they see it. This is no trick Moses isn't a magician like we are. This is the finger of God. But as for Pharaoh, you guessed it, his heart is hardened. He didn't listen to them. We know the rest of the story. We know that God will continue to increase these plagues and ramp up the the pouring of his wrath until he finally has Pharaoh broken and has displayed his glory over Pharaoh. But we just stay in these first three plagues. There's some interesting things going on here. You might have noticed, but maybe not until we get to the fourth plague. We sneak ahead a little bit. You skim through and and it says for the first time in verse 22, on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, where the Israelites live, so that no swarm of flies will be there. I think, right. So these first three plagues... They hit the Egyptians, but also the Israelites. They felt those. And and Moses has been telling us that from the beginning. We just missed it. 721, it says the blood throughout all the land. 8.2, behold, I will plague all the country with frogs. 8.16, the gnats were in all the land of Egypt. The Israelites were feeling this. Why would God do that? Why why do his plagues hit his own people? I think because he's not just trying to get Israel out of Egypt. He's trying to get Egypt out of Israel. They've been living there a long time, generations, surrounded by the Egyptian way of life, Egyptian values, Egyptian gods. And remember, Israel is God's people, but not because they were perfect. Not because they were doing everything right. Not because they were some great example of faith. They were God's people just because God had chosen them in spite of their doubt. In spite of their doubt. And they did doubt. Remember, Moses and Aaron first went into Pharaoh and they delivered God's message, let the Israelites go. What did Pharaoh do? Kids, the first time, what did Pharaoh say in response? Made them work harder. How did he make them work harder? 
bricks with no straw, right? Get your own straw. Pharaoh increased the burden on them. And, and what did the Israelites do? Did they, did they trust God and wait patiently? Did they say to Pharaoh, oh, this is a bad idea, Pharaoh, because our God will crush you. We're his. No, they turned against God. They went into Pharaoh and they said, Pharaoh, we're your servants. Why do you treat your servants this way, Pharaoh? We belong to you. They met Moses and Aaron on the way out from talking to Pharaoh. And they said to Moses and Aaron, the, the messengers of God, they said, God, judge you. You have made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh. And Exodus 6, 9, Moses had spoken again to the people, telling them the Lord's promise and his plan. He's going to come. He's going to rescue you. And it says they did not believe him. They didn't believe him. And then 6, 6 13 says the Lord gave Moses a charge, a command, both about the people of Israel and Pharaoh to bring them out of the land of Egypt. There's work to be done not only on Pharaoh, but also on Israel. Pharaoh made his heart glorious against God. He was fighting for the worship of Israel. I want them to serve me, not to serve Yahweh. And they were tempted to do it. They were happy there, so it would seem. Part of Israel serving Pharaoh and being invested in the life of Egypt would have been also serving and being invested in the gods of Egypt. And so Exodus 12, 12, right in the middle of the last plague, the Lord says this, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and then listen to this, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The plagues weren't just about Pharaoh, and they weren't just about the Egyptians, they were also about the gods of the Egyptians. Now it's worth noting the Bible never tells us which gods or which plagues are connected to which gods. And so we have to just admit we're guessing. We don't want to make too much of that. Um, and we want to assume that the Bible gives us everything we need to know to understand it properly. Um, but some of that historical conjecture can be pretty helpful. Um, and some of them are fairly clear. The Nile River was an essential part of Egyptian life. It was right at the heart of their economy. It wasn't just about drinking. It was about irrigating all of their fields. Um, Egypt is a wasteland unless there's water. And every year the Nile would flood and it would leave behind rich soil on this massive floodplains. And, and so after the yearly floods, they would have this celebration and they would worship the God Happy, H-A-P-I. Happy was the God of the Nile. And so happy was the God who brought life and, and joy and economic prosperity. And as God turned the Nile, this symbol of life, into blood, symbol of death, he's displaying not only to the Egyptians but to the Israelites, I'm God over this false God. And that joy and happiness and success that you attributed to happy, that you sought after, that you tried to worship happy in order to get this joy, isn't that a great name for this false god? It's not going to happen. I'm the God who holds that in my hands, not, not this false god. Along a similar vein, frogs in Egypt were a symbol of life, fertility, fertility. 
If you're ever walking through the woods and you hear that sound, you know it. If there's frogs croaking, you're, you're not long until you're going to come upon some kind of body of water. And where there's water that's fresh and able to sustain frog life, there's all kinds of life. The Egyptians worshipped a god named Heket, H-E-Q-E-T, Heket. Heket had the head of a frog, and she was the god of fertility, the god of childbirth. Today, having children is kind of optional, maybe even a bit of a nuisance in the way our culture sees it at times. But in that day, children were everything. Children were a sign of success and, and honor, and to not have children was a, was a great curse. Kids, you can remind your parents of that later, maybe without words by taking out the garbage without being asked. So we have this fertility of the land in the God Haket, or sorry, in, in the God Happy, the, the growth of everything they need to survive, and then they have the fertility of the people in Haket. God is taking everything that they trusted in for their life, for their joy, for their thriving, and he's tearing it down. He's showing them that he is the creator God, that he is the one over all of these things. I love the contrast when the Israelites complained to Moses about their life being hard. They say to Moses, you have made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh. And in both of these first plagues, it's specifically mentioned, first in 718, the Nile would stink. And in 814, they gathered the dead frogs into heaps and the whole land stunk. God's making a point to Israel. Egypt, these gods that they worship, that they run after, their pursuit of joy and life, it stinks. It's foul in God's sight. It's not going to pay off. It's not going to deliver on these grand promises that it's made. Only I do that. What are the gods in our culture? Maybe instead of happy, we have Hollywood. Where do we go for, for joy, happiness, money, success, kids, maybe it's video games, toys? We want personal achievement and pride. It's all about me and what I can get out of this world. We grew up in this land. We tend to think like the people around us. We, we tend to have the customs and the habits that they do. We're so easily brainwashed by the world around us. It's also unique to these first three plagues that the magicians are imitating the miracles. They're desperately trying to compete with Yahweh to show that they, as servants of these Egyptian gods, can do everything that the servants of Yahweh can do. The first two plagues, they succeed. And the third, they fail. But like the magicians, like Pharaoh, this world will always compete for our attention. Don't, don't go running after God. We have movies. We have better food. We have, you name it. Just like the magicians, this world will always try to convince you that it can give you what only God can give you. And it might even be successful for a little while. It might work. 
You might be a few years in and going, but you know what? I like it. I'm getting what I want out of my job. I feel like a pretty important person. It's scratching my itch. But it won't last. It won't ultimately deliver. In the end, it will crumble. Only God will fill that. Only God will stand to let anything else be worshipped as something that gives joy. That gives full satisfaction. Kids, you fight this. I remember being there, and I see it in my own kids every day still. It's so easy to believe. You know what? I'll just be happier if I disobey. Isn't that why we do it? If only I could have the things that I want. If only I could have that privilege. Mom, all my friends have a cell phone. If only I had a cell phone, then I would be happy. All my friends get to play Fortnite. If only I got to play Fortnite, then I would be happy. All my friends get to watch movies that my dad won't allow. If I could watch those movies, then I would be happy. It's right there. That's it. That's the world making these promises that it can't keep. Begging you. Follow after me. Find your joy in me. And the parents feel it too. If I could just watch those movies that I shouldn't watch, I would be satisfied. Then I would be happy. Then I would find fulfillment. If I could make a little more money, if I could just live in the right house, if I could just have the right husband or wife, then I would be happy. And we take things that are, that are meant to be gifts from God and, and are good in of themselves and we elevate them into God's themselves. Why do we think this way? Because we've lived in Egypt. Because we see the people around us running after these things. Because we're constantly told by advertising and Facebook and movies and music, these are the things that will make you happy. And we believe it. So just as Romans 1 predicts, we worship and serve created things rather than the creator. All we need is a bigger view of who God is. A fuller understanding of the God who created everything. The God who rules over all of it. Sometimes... That means that like the Israelites, we need to feel some of God's loving discipline. We need to be corrected. We need something that shakes us, that opens our eyes again and turns us back to seeing a little more of who God is. Some trial or suffering. Charles Spurgeon used to say, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. He learned to welcome trials because he knew when this gets hard, really hard, I'm going to get a bigger view of who God is in the end. That's what sanctification is. That's what it is to grow as a Christian. It's not about just learning to grit your teeth and force yourself to do the right thing even though you don't want to. That's, that's folly. That's nonsense. It doesn't work. It's about getting a bigger view of God, seeing him as the creator God, the one who is ultimately valuable, the one who does satisfy our deepest needs. And then seeking after him with joy. Turn your eyes upon 
Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And what? The things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. If God is small in our minds, if we've shrunken him down and pushed him off into a, a corner of our lives, the things of this world seem really tempting. That pull gets really strong and we begin to think, why would I seek after God anyway? Look how small he is. That's not very interesting. That's not very exciting. But there's more of who God is, more that we need to see. And the more we see of who he truly is, the more beautiful he becomes. And you know what? The things of this world, they just start to stink. The things that once had this draw on our soul now just look like a heap of rotting frogs. I don't want that. They lose their appeal. Psalm 119.32 says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. 1 John 3 Beloved, we are children of God now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, listen, we will be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Church, that's what we need, a bigger view of God an enlarged heart to see and love what he really is. Crying out, Psalm 63, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in your sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Let's pray.